as you remain standing, would you hear the words of God? Am I in the right place? <laughs> yeah. Our word comes from 2 Samuel chapter 13, the long section, verses 1 through 21. And in 2 Samuel chapter 13, and I'll read that for us, the reading of God's word. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, and he re- but he refused to eat. Uh, refused to eat. And then Amnon said, send, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. But when she brought them near, near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I marry, carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Ammon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong, and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence, and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. So her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when the king, when King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. Church, man does not live by bread alone. Amen. May all be seated. I almost entitled our sermon this morning, 
why in the world we have stories like this in the Bible. <laughs> too long a title. But why these sorts of stories in Scripture? There's a lot happening in this chapter. All sorts of interesting characters come out of the woodwork. Names you may or may not recognize. Now, these are not your playful children's Bible story characters who we all love and admire and remember. These stories are dark and grim. These certainly don't sound like stories you find in the Bible, not our Bible. But in this story, as you read through it, you may recognize one familiar name, David. He was a man whom God called a man after my own heart. You may remember the story of David slaying the Philistine, the giants, with a sling and a stone. You may remember that he was the most beloved king in Israel. He followed after Saul, who was a man who was not after God's own heart, and yet God replaced Saul with this man, David. David is reigned as king, experienced victories in battle. He conquered nations and established the, the kingdom of Israel and, and extended the borders and the, and the kingdom of, of this particular nation. But you and I both know that David's reign was fraught with peril. He committed the double sin of adultery and murder of Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, the Hittites. And every story that you read from this point on is an unraveling, an unraveling of his life, an unraveling of his family, an unraveling of his rule as king over Israel. And so when we come to a chapter like this, again, I ask, why in the world do we have stories like this in the Bible? After David sinned with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Nathan the prophet confronts the king and pronounces judgment on the house of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, one chapter previous to the one we're looking at this morning, uh, Samuel the prophet writes these words, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wife in the sight of the sun for what you did in secret, what you did secretly. I will do, do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. Uh, chapter 12 is this unraveling. The seeds of dysfunction starting to take root in the life of King David and the king's house. Although David genuinely repented, and you know this, uh, we find that beautiful hymn in Psalm 51 where David confesses his sin and repents before God. And we know that the Lord restores him to complete favor, uh, but we know that the palace will never be the same again. The sins he committed took an, an awful toll. What was once a fairy tale, a story told of a young shepherd who takes on a giant and becomes king quickly turns to drama and tragedy and evil in his own home. If you ever get a chance to, and I would ask if you go home, uh, actually Google the family tree of David and see what you find. 
the family tree of David. And again, there's all these wives and, and concubines. Uh, again, this particular one that I saw has something like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different wives or concubines that David had. And of the nine or ten different wives and concubines, there are children and, and grandchildren who come from that. Um, and again, this family tree that I'm looking at may be missing a few names. It's more convoluted than what you think, but it's, it's, a, it's a horrific mess. The tree fails to show you uh, what they do and what they did. Uh, but these are uh, characters that we find in this, in this family tree of David and these, uh, these unnamed wives and concubines. What a mess. And I must admit that this part of David's character has always disturbed me and puzzled me. He was a man after God's own heart, a valiant warrior who learned to trust God for everything. He was so tender. What a beautiful poet he was and a worshiper of God, and yet this dysfunctional mess. Let me pause right there and say, my friends, the Bible never flatters its heroes. Even the best of them are corrupt and have some flaw and oftentimes too many to count. And certainly David is no exception. He is not your fairy tale prince, the handsome young warrior who sweeps the beautiful princess off her feet. In fact, He's a polygamist. <laughs> he's, swept by the, by, he's swept quite a few off of their feet. <laughs> and these details, the ones who like to leave in a closet or under a rug, are intentionally placed for, uh, there for us to see. The Bible displays, uh, again, these seemingly heroes and heroines and all their glory, warts and scabs and imperfections, all of it without pretense or have it all together facade. My friend, this is strange, but this is the Bible that we read. These are the stories that are there. And for some crazy reason, these stories are there in our, again, what we call holy scriptures. As we look at 2 Samuel, there seems to be a real spotlight, a heavy focus on certain characters. And again, these are the children of David. The writer goes to great lengths to graphically depict the cast and their actions, um, starting from chapter 13, and we might be tempted to think uh, the stories are lessons about them. But you and I both know that the Bible stress, after all, is not on them so much as it is about him. Whenever we come to a difficult passage like, passage like this, and again, I think any passage counts, well, we have to ask these questions when we look at texts like this with these questions that help us put things into perspective, and it's really, what are these things, what are these stories, or what, are this, what about this action, or these failures say about the heart of God? And I would also ask and preface that with a second question. What do these things point us? Uh, how do these stories point us to the heart of, of Christ? Now, again, these are tangential characters. There's a char tangential characters like nephews and counselors and commanders. And for lack of time, we won't go into that. 
uh, part of this story. There's not enough time to cover uh, the story right and get the context straight, and I would ask you to read it when you have time. But throughout 2 Samuel, we're introduced to the family. We meet Amnon. Again, these are the main characters. You see Amnon and Axelon. These are, again, two brothers from two different families. Oh, sorry, two different wives. And then there's Tamar, who is of the same family as, as, uh, as one of the brothers. So Absalom has a sister named Tamar, born of the same mother, and then uh, Amnon is a, a son of a different woman. So by the time we get to chapter 13, it's a dysfunctional family mess. It's like a bad soap opera. You know, I particularly like shows like, uh, you know, Full House. I mean, good, wholesome shows. I think uh, back when I was growing up, I'm not sure how I would view it now, but the Cosby show, I mean, they, there's always a, a problem that arises within the story. And you know what, what, what I loved about that was by the end of 30 minutes, all these problems are resolved. Not this. This is your bad soap opera. This is your, your bad episode. You know, we are given an insider's view of this gut-wrenching family dynamic. It's like a real-life show. Among Amnon, the oldest, uh, lusts after his half-sister, the brother of Absalom, and commits this deplorable act. There's hate, there's murder, there's lust and rape. Absalom's name means a father of peace. However, Absalom is enraged and assaults, uh, and at the assault of his sister, plans for cold-blooded revenge. Um, it sounds familiar, familiar because it's happened just one chapter before with David, the father. But we're introduced to Amnon. And I gave you the ending right here. But Amnon will be dead by the end of the chapter. But he's portrayed here like a Canaanite, like a foreigner, like a Gentile, a non-Jew. And he will die a Canaanite's death. And this story isn't a unique event in the Bible. Sadly, there are others quite like it. Well, David's son Amnon has uh, fallen in love with his half-sister Tamar, and although the text calls it love, you and I know that it's not love. Amnon's actions make it clear that this was not a pure kind of self-giving love, but rather a consuming love that seeks to satisfy personal appetites. So when Amnon has finished satisfying his love with Tamar, Amnon's great love turns instantly to bitter hatred. The text tells us that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had for her. And it is Absalom. Absalom who loves his sister with a brotherly love. Absalom loved her so much that he names his daughter Tamar as well. But in this particular text, Absalom is the only man, for now, who acts with decency. He consoles her, he cares for her, he has her brought into his home and, and has a way of uh, providing hospitality and, and care for her in her desperate time. But, you know, the hatred for Amnon simmers in his heart for a very long time. Two years, my friends. Two years, he simmers in his heart. For two years, he plots his revenge. The evil circumstances corrupt people more easily than we can understand. There is a paper-thin line that exists between justifiable anger and hateful destruction. Justice can look very much like revenge, 
in an attempt to set things right, we may stumble into spiteful vindictiveness. And, and we see this with, with that one. As I was preparing this particular sermon, I was thinking about all the movies that I love. All the movies that I've seen and, and enjoyed so much are, are filled with, with vengeance and revenge. You know, every story that has a good ending is, is one where revenge has been taken. And no less true here in the story of Axelon. So at Shechari time, he'll invite all of the king's sons. He invites the king, but the king doesn't come. But he especially invites Amnon, his half-brother. And in an act of premeditated murder, when Amnon is drunk, Axelon kills him. In an act of rage, he murders his half-brother. Church sins more than guilt. I'm sorry, sins more than guilt. And the consequences that follow, there is a consuming nature that ruins relationships and corrodes the purest of intentions. And again, here, uh, for Absalom, and again, had taken a hold of his heart. And then there's King David. There's Amnon, there's Absalom, and Tamar, and then there's King David. You look at David, a man after God's own heart, but here he's. He's angry, and yet he doesn't do a thing. David, the father of Amnon and Absalom and Tamar, the father of these three, who have committed this horrendous, horrendous act, is filled with rage and anger, and yet he doesn't do a thing. He's heard about all these things. And he was very angry, so the text tells us. He's angry, and that's good. But that's all he does. And that's that. The text tells us that David did nothing. David was very angry. But that's it. That's all. According to the law, which David knew very well, whoever violated his sister was to be vomited out of the community. That was the law of the land where David was king. He was to enforce the law of God. David should have put him out of the house, out of Jerusalem, out of the land of Israel, thereby making a bold statement to the community that his son's actions had caused him to be an abomination there was no excuse for such a violent crime. Uh, David got very angry, but yet he did nothing. David had heard how Amnon had used him, how he weaseled him for permission for Tamar to come to his house. He heard how Amnon had abused Tamar, how he had disposed of her, how uh, perhaps uh, how she was a destroyed woman existing in Absalom's house. David heard all about all these things, and yet he was, he was very angry. David was irate. He was so furious that he could scarcely contain his rage. And unfortunately, that's all he did. But my friends, before we get carried away, too quick to judge what David doesn't do. The passivity of David to remain silent. I would ask you this question. What would you do if you were the parents? 
What if you were the parents? In this case, the arbiter, the judge between the perpetrator, Amnon, and the victim, Tamar. His own son and his own daughter. How do you decide who to console? Yes, Tamar is the obvious choice, but Amnon also requires the counsel and care of his father. David is caught between a rock and a hard place, and perhaps the reason why he remains silent. How do you punish and bring to justice a son? Two people in the same family at the same time. Yes, this is both hypothetical and also real. How does the Father show justice and grace at the same time? How does he show both truth and love at the same time? Amnon should have been punished and Tamar exonerated. Instead, Amnon is not held accountable and Tamar receives no retribution, no atonement, or even consolation from David, from what the text tells us or doesn't tell us. And Absalom is handed a plausible excuse for revenge. He takes matters into his own hands. How do you keep your children accountable when David seems to be in no position to do so? For he too was an adulterer and a murderer. So again, why do we have these kinds of stories in the Bible? There are dear Christian men and godly women, yes, who have been violated, and this story is, is a word that tells us tells those who are, work, are walking in, in dark and desperate times that you are not alone. You see, what kind of Bible would it be if it didn't address the dreads and the hurts and the pains and the darkness that so colors our life? You see, there isn't a circumstance, there, there isn't an event there, that the Bible doesn't address in some way that in the, the hardship and the trials and the difficulties of life, that God sees, that God feels, and God has compassion, and God walks alongside, and, and God feels the same pains that you do. You see, when we read through scriptures like this, again, I think there are reminders of, of God's compassion, that God walks us through these difficulties. One of the Hebrew names for God is El Roy, the God who sees. If you remember back to the, the story of the Exodus, you may remember the, the Israelites crying out to God because of the harsh work conditions that these slaves were in by the Egyptians. And they cry out to God. And the first chapter of Exodus chapter 1 tells us that, that God heard them. That God sees them. That we have a God who sees. 
that one of the characteristics of, of God is that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere at all times, that there's not a place we can go that we escape the presence of God, that he is there. Whether we acknowledge him or not, he is there. From the moment we rise to the time we go to sleep at night, he is always with us. Even when we fall asleep, the eternal God who does not sleep or slumber watches over us. These stories, these horrific stories of the Old Testament tell us that there is a good God, that there is a God who cares, that there is a God who has compassion for those who are His. You see, our own families may not have been there when we needed them most. Our friends may have treated us poorly. We feel abandoned and alone. And if that's the case, I have good news for you. God sees your troubles. He knows what you're going through. And he sees you. And he hears you. When we ask the questions, God, where are you in my suffering? God, have you forgotten about me? Or how will I ever get through this? God knew. And God wants us to know that he is there. That there would be no circumstances so difficult we would, that we would, uh, difficult we would often question whether he really loves us or not. That whether he's with us in our suffering or not. But scripture tells us, and the promises of God are sure that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Isaiah 43, verse 2, God says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. Every book, all 66 books, have some sort of, of this, whether explicit or implicit, is this promise of God that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Written throughout the pages of the Old Testament, and again in the New Testament, as he's departing to the Father, and he sends up to, to be with God, he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. These stories tell us about other things. These tell us about, about a good God. If what we see in David, a passive king who does nothing to bring about justice, even for his own family, what this points to for us as we read the scriptures is that our God is a far better king. Yes, there's something about David's fury, but it should have led to a righteous result. The angels should have led to justice. And what we see is what David lacks, God does. That God, in some mysterious way, he sees the sins of the world and he takes the unrighteousness and the sinfulness of humanity and places all of that sin on a cross on his own son. That as Jesus 
hangs there on the cross. He bears the weight and the guilt of the sins of the whole world. The God who loves also is a God who declares truth and justice. And he does that through his own son. This morning, our story is about a better king, a better king that comes, who cares for his people, who loves them and shows compassion and sets up a, a kingdom where righteousness reigns. It's about a better king, but the story is about a better father as well. It's a story about a better father, and again, it is by no accident that, again, here David is both king and father, and again, points this to a God who is a better king and a better father. God who is able to effortlessly and simultaneously fulfill both roles as the omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient God who sustains everything in this massive universe, but also is the loving and caring and adoring Father who always has time to draw close to each of his beloved children at any given moment. My friends, my salvation is not a David. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was a man after God's own heart because God humbled him. Why do you think God, uh, why do you think David can write those beautiful songs in which he conveys such a, a nearness and such a tenderness of spirit because God humbled him to the dust? David could bring nothing and say, Lord, look what I can bring. His whole life and his own family's life was in shambles. You know, the history of redemption uh, of this story is saying, David is not your man. Only Jesus, only Jesus can save he can save, and he can help, and he can nourish and protect and surround with his presence his dearest children who find themselves victims in this world like Tamar. This story, it drives us back to Jesus because, again, there is redemption in him alone. That again, David had failed, but again, that there was someone else to come, a greater David, a more perfect David, a perfect, righteous son of God must come. And again, this, this Jesus would provide our redemption, our salvation, while we were yet sinners. As dark as this story is, and we wonder why there are stories like this in Scripture, the Bible story, the gospel message, that there is a faithful God who cares about you and me. Let's come to the Lord together as we bring our troubles before Him. As we lay aside our, our sin before the, the cross. May we find our hope and redemption through Christ and Christ alone. God, you would in your time provide a better king a better prophet, a better priest, and a better king. One who would fill those roles perfectly. One who would come to be our mediator. God, one who would provide a way for us 
to a holy God. That it would be through your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. How we thank you for your great love towards us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. How we thank you for this gospel story. As we pray, Jesus.